Well, good morning and welcome to Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan, and you are always more than welcome to be part of the conversation at 850-414-1234. If you'd like to call in, you can also email us, perspectives at wfsu.org. Oh, my gosh. So much has been written and, of course, reported about the impact of the pandemic on psychological and emotional well-being. And I'm sure that you have been consuming that in abundance. You've got the COVID threat combined with the resulting economic disruptions and supply chain issues and, of course, today's inflationary spiral. You put all that together, and that's a lot of strain on a lot of people. And how are those folks who are feeling that strain and perhaps overreaching when it comes to their own ability to cope with it, able to bring in some help to keep everything on track and improve their psychological and mental well-being. Well, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in the course of the next uh, 50-some minutes here on Perspectives. And we got a great panel of folks lined up to talk about what is available locally and uh, uh, some little thumbnails on G. What do you do when you're really feeling out of sorts? And is this veering into actual clinical depression? Or are we just feeling bad today? Or if it really, really gets out of hand, what is available to help us out? So that's some of the things that we'll be talking about. And if you have any experiences that you would like to share, again, you are welcome to do that as well. So let's go around and and meet folks here. A, A young gentleman I bumped into at the Walker Ford Community Center for the Be Kind to Your Mind event the other evening just impressed me so mightily. I had to ask if he would be part of this discussion today. And he so graciously deigned to say, sure, I'd love to. And he's here with us right now. Dylan McCann, counselor at 211 Big Bend. It's good to see you back in the flesh again, Dylan. Yeah, it's good to see you as well. I'm really glad to be here and uh, excited to talk about this. This is something I'm really passionate about. Uh, This is what I pursued in my academic career and occupationally. It concerns me greatly and also on a personal level. So yeah, great to be here. And it's also good that you've got all that frontline experience as well. So we you know, want, want to kind of tap into that. But we also head on over to Tallahassee Memorial Healthcare, and that is where Heather Lincecum hangs out. She serves as administrator for the TMH uh, a Behavioral Health Center and is also chief liaison officer for the Appalachie Center. Heather, how you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. I'm glad to participate in conversations like this. I think they're very important. Um, so thank you for the invite. It is wonderful to have you here. And we also uh, would have to include the city of Tallahassee in these discussions, too, because there are so many initiatives that the city is now involved with in promoting uh, behavioral and mental health wellness. And the person who is uh, all about that is Anita Morrell, manager of Human Services Division of the Department of Housing and Community Resilience in the city of Tallahassee. And good to see you, Anita. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm glad to be here. Well, let's just start out with you here. With the city getting involved in mental health, so many uh, employers, of course, have internal mental health programs and counseling services for employees and all. But the city of Tallahassee is kind of taking this to another level by doing outreach programs too, right? Yes. So um, during the height of the pandemic, the commissioners brought to our attention the staff that um, 
seeing the unrest in the community of police officers arresting persons that are suffering from mental illness and also just recognizing, again, some of the issues that you mentioned with the pandemic and everything else that's going on that we needed to provide some services to our community, which we already do, but something different than what the government usually does. So we definitely reached out to our partners um, to make sure that we would be able to serve our neighbors in their neighborhoods and the services that they really need. Particularly in that teams aspect, which I believe is what is called that new unit that helps Tallahassee police, if there seems to be some kind of a mental health component to a particular case, you may not want to dispatch the SWAT team. You may want to bring in counseling resources to help to diffuse that situation and have a different outcome than just throwing on the cuffs and hauling them off to the uh, detention facility. Yes, sir. So, um, Last March, we launched the team, the Tallahassee Emergency Assistant Mobile Unit, where that team is comprised of a licensed mental health professional, a crisis intervention trained police officer, and a paramedic um, or um, EMT um, firefighter. They are dispatched through 911 to respond to calls of persons experiencing a mental health episode. The police officer is just there solely for security. They are not involved in the interaction with the individual. That is the responsibility of the the licensed mental health professional. They are there to serve them at whatever level they need. Um, If they need to be Baker Act, then that's the service that they need. But a lot of times it's counseling on scene um, and giving them the resources they need for follow-up and aftercare. And, of course, we always work with 211. We work with Appalachia on that follow-up. So, yes, that has been a a crucial um, addition to the services that we're providing to our neighbors. The crisis response team. That's terrific. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go here. But, you know, some of those folks might even wind up at Tallahassee Memorial Healthcare. And Heather, let's come. How does that work? You know, when people come in, is it uh, not just referrals from, say, the teams program that Anita just talked about, but just people who are come in and they are in, in chronic crisis? And how do you handle that? Absolutely. Um, We have clinicians located in our emergency department, on our med surge floors, and at our behavioral health center um, capable of providing crisis services, evaluation, um, getting them linked with outpatient resources. Um, So we have a direct admissions program. It's Monday through Friday from the hours of 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Anyone from the community can come. Um, They can access um, our clinicians, get a mental health evaluation, Some of those patients do require inpatient care. Um, A great number of them just need resources to to outpatient. Um, We work very collaboratively with Appalachia to make sure that, um, you know, we've enhanced our continuum of care. Um, Some of the patients that we see will be referred to our outpatient services where we do, you know, med management, we do counseling. Um, We have a wonderful program called the the BEST program. It stands for Behavioral Emergency Services Team. And it's really, um, we're very proud of it. It's a -a one-of-a-kind program, I think, um, where, again, we have clinicians embedded in our ED. So oftentimes we have patients that come in, they don't present with a a primary psychiatric um, emergency. They're coming for physical comorbidities that they need treatment for. Um, But we discover that that there are some underlying untreated mental health issues. And so we have clinicians right there in the ED that are capable of providing care 
Um, it's very important that we don't delay care, that we identify the needs, um, and we do the same on the medical surgical floors. Um, for inpatient services, we're very robust. We have two adult units, um, and we have a child and adolescent unit. So we take kids from um, the ages of 6 to 17. Um, we treat an array of mental health disorders as well as substance use. That which is a pretty comprehensive approach there. But, you know, a lot of cries for help begin with a phone call. And uh, Dylan McCann, that's where you come in. So uh, talk, about, talk about your your situation at 211 Big Bend, uh, be, being right there on the front line. You're just standing by with that, that phone. Yeah, and I, I like to think of mental health holistically, just as we view physical health where maybe you go in for just a check-in or a physical once every six months to a year to see that, oh, is your vision okay? Are your nerves okay? Is the patellar tendon reflex working? Um, but then it might get to a point where there is an acute crisis, and that's where you would go to the emergency room or potentially call 911. I like to view mental health in a similar way, where at 211 Bend, the marquee numbers that we answer, which are Helpline 211 and the National Suicide Prevention Line, those function as short-term supportive and crisis counseling lines. And just to throw sort of some statistic out, statistics out there, suicide is definitely a crisis. It is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Approximately 48,000 people a year die by suicide. And that is particularly acute with youths and adolescents, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the deaths by suicide with uh, children aged 8 to 17 has spiked, and it is the second leading cause of death for adolescents. And what we see ourselves as is, although we advertise ourselves as a prevention line, we are also there to just talk with people who are experiencing a mental health crisis, who are feeling alone, who are feeling isolated and just need someone to talk to because mental health, unfortunately, is something that is stigmatized. It's taboo. It's not really something we like to be open about, and we provide that service as well 24-7. Lifeline is answered at approximately 170 local centers on a national region-by-region basis, and 211 Big Bend is proud to do that. That spike that you talked about, though, among young people with suicidal mm -hmm. ideation and, and those kinds of real crisis circumstances, any idea what is behind that? Much has been made of, oh, the kids couldn't go to school, they couldn't socially interact face-to-face, -face, and they just flipped out. Do you think that that is a contributing factor or is something else going on? You know, that's a great question. And before we continue, I want to just stress that I'm not speaking on behalf of 211. Uh, I'm not advertising their opinions. All of this is just my own, and I'm a paraprofessional. Uh, but you're right. There has been a dramatic spike, and I don't know why. Um, there's probably a lot of different answers, but I think one particularly uh, one thing I have experienced personally and maybe noticed among my own peers is that when you're in that age, uh, it's been observed in uh, by psychologists that you care most about what others think of you. And a lot of your learning does take place in a social environment from the days of Freud to Piaget all the way up to modern psychology. Um, we view learning not just through classroom instruction but also interacting with peers. And that's where we also get most of our social stimulation. Um, and uh, if you look at just how deleterious the effects of social isolation are with persons who are elderly, I believe the same could absolutely apply with people who are adolescents. 
And especially the isolation you talked about there, Dylan, when you are away from a peer group and you are perhaps only interacting through social media. And so you see all these profiles on Instagram and, you know, TikTok mm -hmm. videos and everything else. You think, my gosh, you know, I am I am so behind the curve. I do not stack up, you know, well when you look at the warp and woof of, you know, my age group. Yeah, and it feels like interaction, but it's sort of this Baudrillardian simula simulacrum of interaction. It's not necessarily real, I would say, but it has the air of real social interaction. And I got to remember that term. Thank you. We'll be right back with more on Perspectives right here on WFSU Public Media. Back on Perspectives, and your input is always welcome, too, at 850-414-1234 or email perspectives at wfsu.org. The topic is uh, mental well-being, which we are in the midst of May, which is National Mental Health Awareness Month. And we have a great panel of folks here, and we'd like to hear your stories, too. I was thinking of one in particular where it is sometimes a learning process to find a counselor, a therapist, a psychologist, someone who can help you that really jives well with your personality and your demeanor and your preferences and that kind of thing. And I wanted to throw that out to the group. If you are referred for counseling and you uh, find someone and they don't quite mesh, what is the best course of action to just kind of tough it out to seek another counselor, look for different alternatives. Anyone have any, any thought about that? Well, as a LCSW, not currently practicing, I used to encourage patients to be open and honest with me. If they felt like I wasn't meeting their expectations, let's talk about it sooner rather than later. Um, and I think patients should be encouraged to, to talk to their counselors about it. Um, sometimes you can get on the same page. Sometimes it's legitimately not a good fit. Um, but we know that it's not going to work if, if you're not, you know, on the same page with, with treatment goals. So I, I would encourage people to be open. Okay, and that's Heather Linsigan, by the way, from uh, Tallahassee Memorial uh, Healthcare on that. A good thought. So, so the counselor doesn't get offended or they, their feelings are hurt or that sort of thing? No, we're, we're not supposed to. But if we do, we, we suck it up and keep going. It's not personal at all. It's, you know, again, we're, we're there to service the patient. So it's, it's all about them. Okay. Anita Morell, we were talking about the team's situation that uh, Tallahassee Police now has access to. If, uh, obviously, it is a, uh, a mental health type of situation rather than dispatching, you know, the regular uh, officers, uh, although there will be an officer there, as you said, to provide security. But the city's also doing an outreach here in some selected neighborhoods, too. And I'm thinking down here, not too far from us here along Orange Avenue. What's the plan there? What's going on? Well, right now I can tell you about the three um, services that we're providing in the community. So right now we're at Jake Gaither Community Center, um, Smith Williams Community Center, and the Lincoln Center. And this is where we are providing free mental health counseling to anyone in the community. But we definitely put it in neighborhoods where we wanted to make it easily accessible to those that don't have the transportation to get outside of their communities. So we've partnered with a couple of agencies to where they can the um, our neighbors can receive up to three free sessions of mental health counseling um, 
no barriers. We don't ask your name. We don't want any information, just the basic information of your your, your demographics because we don't want to create a barrier to people receiving needed services. And we, we were strategic in making sure that we put it in the neighborhoods of the people that really need the services the most. That really flies in the face of something that we hear so often, which is, oh, my gosh, the resources just aren't available. You can't find any mental health counseling. If you do, you're put on a wait list. It's expensive. It's all... This is very unique. It is, and we're very proud of this program. Um, it was a slow start because we kind of put it at a high level, and um, Dylan mentioned that you know mental health has a stigma attached to it. So our initial... Um, um, advertisement of the program was mental health, but and so the numbers were slow in coming in. So we were like, okay, let's dial it back, let's bring it down to the level to the people that really need the service. So now we're just asking, are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you need to talk about family, your job? So now the numbers are starting to increase, and we're happy to see that people are taking advantage of it. And and Dylan, yeah, when we were talking the other night, you drew that comparison to, to from physical health to mental and psychological well being. That it is, you know, okay. I have diabetes. I, you know, I don't have to be ashamed of that. There are treatments for it. It can be mitigated. It can be handled and taken care of. And the same thing with mental health issues too. Absolutely. And uh, I would say that with mental health, there are a lot of preventative measures that uh, you can, one can take or one can potentially seek out uh, therapy when it is starting to get worse, but not to where it is acutely at the point of crisis, much like you would go to a doctor if you're having slight pains in your joints or if you are pre-diabetic. I would say the same can be done if you are having concerns about anhedonia, where you're not, uh, where you are starting to become withdrawn and detached from the things that you used to like. And 211, if you dial 211 and press 9, we have a mental health navigator team where you can get in touch with someone who has a database compiled of mental health care providers in the Big Bend area of Florida, which encompasses Leon County, Wakulla, Gadsden, etc. Our I&R heads have sent out a survey to LCSWs, uh, licensed mental health counselors, psychologists and psychiatrists in the area asking a variety of questions about what insurances they accept, if they accept sliding scales as well, what their specialties are. And we use that to accurately link callers with mental health care providers in their Big Bend area that might be able to assist them. Additionally, we might be able to help them set up an appointment if that is something that would be a challenge for them. And I also want to say that 211 Big Bend is accepting volunteers. We're having a training session coming up this summer. Uh, and this Thursday, we are having an interview session. Applications are going to be accepted until the 31st. Uh, spots tend to fill up fairly quickly. So if you are interested in helping out your community and having a very life-changing experience, I highly recommend uh, looking at 211bigbend.org. Oh, what specific qualifications are you looking for besides being able to be a good listener? <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned qualifications because we don't really look for qualifications so much as we look for instincts, attitudes, and the ability to be empathetic because that's what matters the most, being genuine and being able to legitimately connect with a caller, not where you are, but where they are, is what we look for the most. And uh, if you feel like that is something you are good at, or again, if you're really curious about a life-changing experience, it's changed my life, it's changed the trajectory of my career, 
211bigben.org. And how many people grow up saying, boy, I just want to help people. What a great way to do that. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Heather, uh, Dylan brought up another good point, though, that there seems to be an evolution, at least in our attitudes towards mental health care. At one time, this was very widely considered to be a very elite sort of thing. Nice to have if you can afford it, but not critical. That attitude seems to be changing now, isn't it? Absolutely. I I think conversations like this help. Um, I also think that there is a lot of integration in mental health and in primary care offices. Um, We've certainly seen it in Tallahassee Memorial and our ED. Um, I think the more that we're able to educate and talk about it and integrate it into holistic care, um, the better. Um, I I don't think we're at a time where we can afford to underinvest anymore in mental health services. Um, We have to continue to be talking about these. Um, We have to continue to drive change with social and health care inequities. Now is the time. So absolutely. Mm -hmm. And employers are coming online, too, with offering counseling services and, uh, you know, employee services that can put people in touch with any kind of resources that they need. For for the city of Tallahassee, one of our largest employers here, Anita, what's what's available to uh, city staff? If you're, you know, feeling down or you've, you know, got a domestic crisis or anything else that people can plug into. I know right now, of course, they're, they're, the services that I just mentioned are available. Um, we also have the EAP program, the Employee Assistant Program that we have available to all city employees. But um, leadership is definitely recognizing that, you know, we're investing in the community and our employees live in the community. So they're brainstorming on what other resources we need to bring in internally to um, be able to address whatever issues our employees are dealing with. Yeah, I only said that because uh, we just recently at my house had a visit from uh, uh, my wife's elder daughter who works at a large company in Columbus, Ohio. And it has been like, as she described it, pulling teeth to get her boss, the owner of the company, who is a nice guy, but let's just say he would have been also a nice guy in 1953, uh, to recognize that this is something that his employees could really avail themselves of and perhaps uh, derail some situations before they really, really get out of control. Because you were saying, Dylan, this is just like a physical situation. You need to get on top of it quickly if you want to be more effective and you want to you know, prevent as much pain as possible, really. And on top of that, uh, I would say that one of those old attitudes that still prevails that I dealt with for a long time is that strength comes from not showing when you are in need of assistance, uh, especially when it comes to men, just not saying that you need help or not showing when you are struggling or in pain. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I believe that it is incredibly brave and it takes a lot of courage to say that you are not doing okay that you are in need to talk about some emotional uh, turbulence that you are going through and that you do need assistance. And I especially say this because with men, uh, the problem of suicidal ideation and death by suicide is uh, significantly worse, unfortunately, in, in large part because of these patriarchal attitudes of repression and men not being able to fully show their emotions uh, in a way that is not highly stigmatized. 
We are going to add another voice to the conversation here on Perspectives. It could not be a discussion of mental health issues in this entire region if we did not also say hello and welcome to Dr. Jay Reeve, who is president and CEO of Appalachia Center. Jay, it has been a while. How are you? It, it has been too long, Tom. I'm, I'm doing very well. How are you? We we are doing much much better now that you are here, uh, Dr. Reeve. <laughs> I appreciate that, Tom. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. I'm sorry I had to come in late. I had a statewide meeting that I had to duck out of early, but I would never miss your perspective show on mental health. You are more than kind, sir, and we thank you for making time for us here. But give us the latest lowdown on Appalachia Center because, again, we can't reference a mental health care in this region without somehow tying it into Appalachia Center. So, you know, give us the newsy lowdown, if you would. What's uh, what's the latest stuff with you guys? Absolutely. So the, the I think the most interesting thing that we're doing lately, and this goes back several years, but it's kind of building every year, is what we're doing with mobile response teams in the community. So this all started about three years ago in the aftermath of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shootings and the state legislature approved funding for mobile crisis response teams in every county in the state. And this was unprecedented for Florida. I actually am not sure that this is followed in any other large state. There's smaller states like Rhode Island and Delaware that do this. But to do that, to to create that funding and that model across the entire state of Florida was a really big deal. And it's something that I had been talking with folks at uh, LCSO and TPD about for many years. And we'd sort of scratch our heads and say, you know, how can we get mental health expertise out into the community at the moment of crisis? Because typically the folks on scene are law enforcement and emergency medical personnel. And we scratch our heads and try and figure something out. But two things happened at once, which were the advent of telemedicine and the advent of, um, and the funding from Marjorie Stone and Douglas. So we put the uh, mobile response team in this region, which is 24-7 response across all eight counties that we serve. Those responses in some of the rural counties can be through telemed with the uh, the sheriff's deputies. In Leon County, it's live. And um, so we started seeing people about three years ago. Well, what was interesting in this community was that, and, and this is not really been paralleled until very recently in other places, is that People in Tallahassee and Leon County really wanted to be part of this and support it. So the city of Tallahassee uh, approached us uh, about a year ago, and actually approached us about a year and a half ago, and said, well, we kind of want to do our own spin on a mobile response team. And so we developed with the city of Tallahassee the team's mobile unit, which is uh, composed of... uh, TPD officer with special CIT training and EMT working for the fire department. Um, They work with central dispatch, and they've got a master's level or licensed therapist from Appalachia Center kind of riding with the mobile unit. And so that unit opened up about a year ago, and then the Leon County Sheriff's Office came to us and said, we'd like 
to kind of do our own spin on this. And we said, sure, we're happy to help. And so we opened up the uh, what's called the calm unit with the Leon County Sheriff's Office about, uh, I want to say it was in December uh, of this year. And so, so far this year, if you put all the different um, teams together, um, just since January, we've responded to over a thousand calls, and so we're on track by the end of this calendar year to have uh, responded to a, just over three thousand calls. And that's been just to give you a, a flavor of how that's worked with mobile response team. That's gone from in the first you know few months of operation something like. 20 or 30 calls to over 200 a month now. And this has really been a game changer for the community because it's allowed us to take the mental health expertise to folks in crisis. And what we've seen is a reduction in Baker Acts across the board. We've seen folks who are involuntarily transported because of mental health crises. Those numbers have dropped. They've dropped in really the the whole the central receiving system that uh, we partner with tmh and with capital regional or i'm sorry hca uh, capital region and we've seen those numbers actually decline and that's a really good thing because it shows that we're able to keep people in the community for service keep them with their families and direct them to less restrictive forms of care so i'm excited about that as you can tell. Absolutely, and particularly uh, since I don't know if you heard, Jay, uh, our own Lynn Hatter did a a comprehensive uh, series of uh, news stories on the Baker Act situation uh, as it relates specifically to uh, the classroom situation of kids Mm -hmm. just being Baker Acted to get them out of school because they're raising a ruckus, and in some cases, you know, it was certainly more serious than that, but still, that was our default, and it's sounds like what you have put in place through Appalachia Center and its various partnerships now is really reducing that incidence of uh, the use of Baker Act as the final solution, if you will, to mental health crisis. That's absolutely right, Tom. And I I think the thing that we want to make sure is that the information about this gets out there, not just to parents, but to schools so that when there's an issue that we can help with, we get calls. There's, there's no charge. This is state-supported. So it's, you know, we're, we're not billing anybody for the service. Um, it's just something that exists now in this community in a way that four years ago, this would have been just a dream of mine to, to be able to have this, the comprehensive different layers of emergency support available schools. So, yeah, I think we're, we're headed in a good direction. Well, we're headed in the direction also to a quick timeout here on Perspectives, and we'll take that momentarily, but we will invite you to call if you have had a, uh, a circumstance where you have sought uh, mental health counseling or special care for any kind of emotional distress or whatever, and you would like to share that with us, uh, that would be powerful, and we'd love to hear from you at 850-414-1234. If you don't want to call, you can just zip us an email, perspectives at WFS. Mental Health Awareness Month is May, and that is what our program is about here on Perspectives, and we'll return momentarily. 
Back on Perspectives, Heather Lincecum with Tallahassee Memorial, Anita Morell, Dylan McGann, and Dr. Jay Reeve here with us as we talk about all the wonderful stuff that is going on relative to mental health resources here in our community and even beyond. Uh, Dylan, if I can, uh, you know, throw it over to you here, what we were talking about here with these kind of fast response teams for mental health uh, situation, crisis intervention and all that, does that help? Help you guys at two one one Big Bend, or the you know the people who have to deal with these crises on the phone, give you yeah kind of one more arrow in the quiver or whatever. Absolutely, and uh, I obviously can't talk about the specific details of calls because that is confidential. But what I will say is that resources like that are incredibly valuable because uh, for those of uh, for the listeners who are unaware of what an involuntary. Uh, hospitalization might look like or what a wellness check uh, in the days before a crisis response team came out. It could be terrifying and it could be nerve-wracking and it uh, uh, led to an association of mental illness or a mental health crisis with criminalization because most of the time the person that came out was a police officer, they were armed, and if an involuntary hospitalization was necessary or deemed necessary at that point in time, it often involved handcuffs being placed on the person in crisis. They would wait in the back of a police car while they were taken to a hospital. And that can unfortunately lead to a traumatizing experience and uh, disincentivize that crisis person seeking out mental health services ever again. So having a uh, licensed mental health professional, having a team that is specifically trained for um, crises like this is so, so important. And we greatly appreciate the team's response unit being developed, and we hope that it expands beyond that. Yeah, and I think expansion is kind of in the works, isn't it, Anita? Yes, oh, we fantastic. are hoping, yes. So yesterday at the city commission budget meeting, um, there was conversation of expanding the, the team. Currently, there's one team that operates um, Monday, seven days a week from 8 to 5, and we know that that's just not within the hours of when a crisis will happen. So we are proposing three additional teams to where we can cover at least 16 hours a week, 16 hours a day, um, seven days a week. Okay. Uh, which is, again, we, we were saying three o'clock Sunday morning. That's yeah. when that's when everything <laughs> goes down. As far as, as Tallahassee Memorial is concerned, though, Heather, that, that situation too, do you have adequate resources? Everyone needs more, of course, all the time. But are you guys up to staff and snuff as far as being able to respond to the need or are you still having to kind of push? Well, I don't I don't think we can meet the need alone. Um, I think that's why um, collaborating and partnering with organizations like Appalachia is so important um, because we expand our continuum of care. Um, so what we've developed um, is a no wrong door approach. Um, if we don't have the resources at Tallahassee Memorial Healthcare to take care of a patient um, appropriately or provide care that they're needing, then, then again, we collaborate with Appalachia. I appreciate working in a community where you've got several different entities all working together um, to, to meet our community needs um, and to meet patients where they are. Um, so, you know, we, we at Tallahassee Memorial have expanded telehealth as well. So we, that has been a game changer for us. We've been able to reach people that we normally would not be able to. Um, we're doing um, telemedicine also with some rural critical access hospitals so we can service those patients as well. Um, you know, so again, we're, we're doing what we can to partner and, and work with, um, with our community to make sure that we're continuing to, to meet those needs. 
Needs, of course, are the operative word. And Jay Reeve, uh, given the fact that Appalachie Center is continuing to develop new initiatives, new partnerships, and identify uh, additional ways of providing mental health care to more people, what has been the overall impact of COVID and beyond, as we have been hearing, at least anecdotally and from some other research, that the need is, in many communities, greater than it has ever been? Well, that's, that's a great question, Tom. I think that, you know, to, to Heather's point, there's no way we could do what we do without the partnerships we have partnerships with the city and the county with 211 and especially with Tallahassee Memorial Hospital. I, I can't say enough about how extraordinary Heather's leadership has been at the Behavioral Health Center. We've really got a, a very strong system of hospital-based care. We're developing um, through TMH a, a larger system of outpatient care, and that's really a, a great tribute to, to Heather's work in trying to make sure we can get as many people in as possible. That said, the, the, the impact of COVID has been interesting because what we've seen on the front end was that there has been some increase in folks, especially among kids, who are trying to access behavioral health services because COVID happened around the same time that we were beginning to implement the the three different layers of mobile response that we currently have, I think we managed to blunt some of that impact on the system. And as, as Devin was describing, not only is this, uh, you know, Baker acting a client potentially traumatic for the client, but we have to manage that within a, a limited system of care. And I think we've been done pretty well at that because of what we've been able to do with partnerships and mobile response. So the big impact for us, and I think this is true for TMH and for us, and I guess would be for 211 as well, has been not as much the initial impact of the pandemic as the economic dislocation that it led to. And we've all you know, heard about and talked about the great resignation. That's been particularly hard-hitting in healthcare. There are, um, you know, just huge swaths of staff that we have, you know, been working to retain and recruit and bring folks in. And it's hard. The market's changed. The um, minimum, uh, minimum salary levels and compensation levels that are driven by the market have gone up dramatically. So we've all had to work with our funders to make sure that their funding goes up dramatically. And even in doing that, we've had some struggles making sure that uh, we've, we've got adequate coverage. I think it's extraordinary how well we've done in this community because we've managed through dint of great effort on TMH's part and at the Bay Health Center and here at Appalachia Center, we've kept our doors open. We've kept them open through this whole thing. That's not true for every community, but it's it, it hasn't been entirely easy. Yeah, and, and as you said there, with the younger folks apparently needing a lot more care than heretofore, is there a hangover effect perhaps looming over as you've got a lot of build-up trauma, if you will, especially among younger folks 
who are likely to carry that forward and it will manifest itself in years to come and perpetuate the problem. Is, is that a fear? Yeah, we, we saw, actually I was just looking at some of the statistics, we saw something really interesting with new clients over the past three years, sort of the years of COVID. In the, the, the first year that COVID hit in fiscal year 2021, we saw this fairly dramatic uptick in the number of clients who were coming to us complaining of anxiety symptoms, right? So we'd always had, we'd always worked with folks with different kinds of anxiety disorders. Those went up by double-digit percentage points during the lockdowns, during the initial dislocations of COVID. But what was fascinating is that among adults, those levels have receded back to what they were pre-pandemic. So it's, you know, they went up by 10, 10 points, they went down by 10 points. We haven't seen that with kids. We've seen with kids is that the number of anxiety cases we were treating went up more during COVID, and they really haven't come down that much. There's been some reduction, but it isn't anywhere close to what our pre-COVID baseline was. And that's reflected in our admissions numbers, both inpatient and outpatient, with the, the number of kids and the percentage of kids that we serve continually continuing to grow. And so I, I think you're right on. I think that for uh, children and youth who are in their formative years developmentally, the impact of the school closures, the lockdowns, the general atmosphere of anxiety that permeated the country, it was it was hard enough for adults to navigate. But if you're a kid and you're just trying to figure out the way the world works and you're taking your cues from your environment, having that level of dislocation I think is gonna take that's gonna take some time to heal. It's gonna take a lot of attention from those of us in the field to make sure that uh, kids are getting what they need. Don't sounds like a 211 Big Bend is going to have business in perpetuity here, especially from perhaps this uh, cohort, if you will, of folks who uh, have really undergone their first great trauma, and it's going to have apparently some lingering impact then. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I can speak further to the youth experience, you know, my brother, for example, he, a lot of the... Uh, benchmarks that you are supposed to hit, like your first year of college, your last year of high school, graduation and prom, that was abruptly discarded because of COVID. And that's awful. And that happened to a lot of kids who were in these, uh, who were looking forward to uh, going to the last dance at high school or have basically had their first two years of college be in their dorms, without the formative experiences of going to parties or going to lecture halls. It's just been them staring at their laptops. And that, it, I I hope it's better than uh, just having no education at all, but it's still dislocating and it's uh, uncomfortable for a lot of them. And that transition out from that, uh, I can speak personally that it has been strange to navigate because I had to have half of my college career uh, through Zoom and then going back into in-person classes, I was like, oh my Am I going to wear a mask? Am I going to get COVID if I'm in this class? I don't know. <laughs> and there was that level of trepidation, but also excitement of going back, but also fear. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. And I, and that anxiety that mm-hmm. Jay just talked about and, and, and what, Heather, you've been, been seeing on the floor there at TMH. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I can speak about my daughter's experience. They're both in high school, and it was that excitement about going back to the classroom. But I remember the night before them saying they had, you know, trouble sleeping. So anxiety rose. You know, they were excited to be amongst their friends, but they were also trepidatious about kind of what this new world looked like. They were all on Chromebooks. You know, they had teachers that were trying to navigate a multitude of different things, um, you know, so parents navigating things, it's a, it's a, it was a new world. So yes, absolutely, um, you know, anxiety levels. Um, and it, it's not just stress, it, it is legitimate anxiety and worry. Um, and so, you know, that's something, again, as a community, we have to wrap our, our, you know, our hands around this and make sure that we have the necessary supports to, you know, be able to address this long term. Sure. And Anita, in, in the case of the city and the uh, target audience is there for the mental health services. I mean, trauma is a way of life for a lot of these folks. Definitely. Yeah. They live it every day. Um, so we, we just wanted to make sure that we were able to be there or provide services that will help remedy some of these anxiety issues or concerns that they will they may have. Because unfortunately, still speaking on children and youth, they kind of internalize what's going on with their parents. So that's another added um, issue within the children. Not only were they dealing with school, but the parents aren't working. The lights are off. There's no food in the home. So, you know, yeah, it, it's a lot for them to deal with. So we are definitely here to um, be able to provide those added resources to our community. So, Jay Reeve, in the few minutes we have remaining here, are you hopeful, optimistic that we will have the capability, the resources, the partnerships in place to handle uh, whatever the future throws at us? Or uh, what's your assessment? I, I am, you know, I tell you, Tom, I, you and I have been talking about this for a lot of years. I am absolutely optimistic. I'm actually as optimistic now as I've ever been in this field. We're at a moment in this community, particularly, where we're experiencing what I would term sort of a, a renaissance of mental health awareness and mental health support. And that's coming from the city. It's coming from the county. There is a level of interest and willingness to support through things like the resilience units that I, I, I think uh, Anita was referencing a minute ago that I just haven't really seen before anywhere that I've lived. And I think that sort of starts at the top. There has been a great deal of messaging coming out of the governor's office and the first lady particularly has been a, you know, a huge proponent of mental health awareness and mental health services. And that has helped the legislature move in the direction of making sure that we have an adequate base of support for what we're doing. But in Tallahassee, it's more than that. In Tallahassee, it's the partnerships, it's the relationships where we've kind of moved beyond the competitive mindset that a lot of different organizations have in different places in the country when it comes to this field. So, you know, we, we really need to be working cooperatively. If we can kind of move past some of the turf areas and into a place where we say we're going to use kind of the best of each organization to get the best network and framework for support that we can here for mental health issues, then we can actually do something kind of transformative. So I am really optimistic about what we're going to see in the next few years. 
And again, I'll ask you the same question here. What's your assessment here in the overall, the three years that you've spent at 211 Big Bend and being on the front line every day? How do you see us moving forward? Well, I want to say that my experience is a little bit different than uh, potentially uh, Heather and, and uh, his, and, as well as yours, because I kind of just see the point of crisis and I see uh, when it is at its worst a lot of the time and I don't see the outcome. So I will say personally, I have a lot more anxiety to use that buzzword again and a lot of nervousness, but I do share that optimism. And I want to stress uh, his point about it having to be cooperation. And I wholeheartedly agree because this is something that affects everyone from the individual to the community, to the regional, to the state and to the national level. And I believe that a coordinated response on all fronts is necessary to combat this mental health crisis and to start treating uh, mental health uh, on an equal playing field as physical health and starting to screen uh, similarly to how we do physicals. That, that's my viewpoint. Heather Lincecum, your thoughts? Well, I, you know, I'm very optimistic. Um, I remember a time in the community where we were very siloed. So I agree with Jay. I think we're at, at a, a different um, time, um, you know, and, and I, I appreciate Jay's continued leadership in this field and, and you know, marching forward to um, make sure that everybody is afforded mental health care. Um, so, again, I, I know it's met with challenges and we have a lot of work to do and continued work to do, but conversations like today with different organizations of the community that are coming together to talk about what we can do for our community, I think we have a fantastic opportunity here. We wrap it up with the city of Tallahassee and Anita Murrah. All right. Well, at, from the city's perspective, we always want to be at the table with any issues that are going on in our community um, to make sure that we are listening effectively and, and being able to be efficient in what we're doing and be there to support what services needs to be available for our neighbors. Um, so we're here. Folks, I can't tell you how much we appreciate this partnership here in this little room today and and with Dr. Jay Reeve joining us telephonically. I know he's got another meeting he's going to be flying off to momentarily. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jay. It's so good to hear from you again, sir. It's my pleasure. Always my pleasure to be here. All righty, sir. And uh, Anita, Devin, and uh, of course, Heather, thank you for being part of this very special perspectives on the mental health resources available in our community and to remind our listeners that they are always available. And if you ever need a list, uh, just call this guy at 211 and he'll he'll give you the long list. Perspectives produced by WFSUFM in Tallahassee. And uh, we have a big program coming up next week, a preview of Created Equal. We will join you then right here on Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. Take care.